Dehumanization at the core of evil is the process of dehumanization by which certain other people or collectives of people are depicted as less than human and not comparable in humanity or personal dignity to those who are doing the labeling. That's a quote from Philip Zimbardo, the famous psychologist. He's the one who conducted those infamous Stanford prison experiments where he took a group of his students in the 70s, divided them into prisoners and prison guards. And he watched how the students, now guards, began to dehumanize their own fellow students, treating them as if they were really prisoners, inflicting psychological torture upon them. And then he saw how the very prisoners who were tortured when told to by the guards would do the very same thing to other prisoners. He calls it the Lucifer effect when seemingly good people through the process of dehumanizing another human being can wish to or actually inflict evil upon another human being. It's how Hitler turned a country against Jews through years of propaganda, cartoons, and comic books that would jokingly depict Jews as less than human. It's the Hutus calling the Tutsis cockroaches, which led to the Rwandan genocide and one million Tutsis killed by their fellow countrymen. It's white Southerners, mostly active churchgoers, gathering to take photos with lynched bodies of black slaves, like they were some prized kill from a hunt. A lot of times it's not that drastic, though, but the same thing happens all the time. The internet allows us the distance we need to dehumanize that faceless person on the other side of the screen as we argue and demean and insult and even cuss out our supposed friends on Facebook. All in the name of debate, hot topics, political discussion. We can label all Syrian refugees as potential terrorists, then we don't have to care about the horrible pain they have gone through. We can call our political opponents un-American, be they whatever party, Republican, Democrat, or some other party, and then we don't have to listen to them because they are other. We can call someone of a different sexual orientation or, or, or a transgendered person a pervert, and then you can treat them however you want. If they're a degenerate, less than, gross, dangerous, mentally ill, lazy, incarcerated, unclean, unbeliever, and God-forsaken, if they're not like us, then they're not as human as we are, and we can excuse ourselves for harm that is done to them. So now what of this man in this story today, possessed with demons, who is he? Is he human? Three times we're told he lives among the tombs, a terrifying place to be, life among dead people. He roams like a wild animal. He's naked. He howls at night and day. He hits himself with stones to bruise his body. 
On his wrists and around his ankles are shackles with broken chains. Every time someone tries to even subdue him, he musters up some kind of monster-like strength and breaks chains as if they were made of paper. This thing is terrifying. When Jesus shows up, this man, if you can call him that, will not even look Jesus in the eye. Jesus asks him his name, but he doesn't have a name anymore. All he knows is the name of his demons, the name that's been imposed upon him. We are called Legion, the voices from within say. Now, Legion is a name given to a battalion of 3,000 to 6,000 soldiers in the Roman army, which suggests that this man is not simply possessed by a demon, but he's occupied by this foreign demonic army. But is he human? Do we have to care what he's going through? Do we have to wonder what it might be like to be a man who loses every piece of dignity, every shred of humanity? Does he have a family? Does he have a name other than the name of those demons? Has he anything to say for himself? Or is he so far gone, so long as he's in the graveyard, we don't have to worry about him or care for him. We can even pretend that he's not even there. And then, well, then Jesus comes to town. Now, Jesus and his disciples are fresh off the boat. You remember from last week having braved this terrifying storm as they crossed the sea, a voyage none of them wanted to go on. But Jesus said, let us go to the other side. And there they are in unfamiliar waters heading to an unknown land. Surely there were plenty of places their their boat could have docked that day. Safer harbors where the disciples could have gone out, rested after that terrifying ordeal. But no, they land in Gentile territory at the Gerasene graveyard. And they are met the moment they exit the boat by a madman. You've got to wonder if this chance meeting on the shores with this demon-possessed man is no accident at all. As if Jesus had made this whole trip just to meet this man. When the demons see Jesus, they call to him, bow down and say, what have you to do with us? Jesus, son of the most high God. And this is how it is in the gospel of Mark. The disciples, the religious leaders, the people closest to Jesus, they never quite get who he is. But the demons, they know right away. Jesus gets off the boat and they know who he is. They know what we too often forget. When Jesus comes to town, things change. And change is the last thing this occupation of demons want. They're happy right where they are. But Jesus looks at the man, has compassion on him, and tells the demons within to come out of this man. And showing grace even to the demons, Jesus casts them out of the man and into a herd of swine, which results in perhaps the most terrifying scene in the whole story, and maybe in the entire Bible, if you really picture a demon-possessed herd of pigs rushing into a sea, drowning to death. This is the gospel. It's not quite as child-friendly as we like. This is the power and the horror that was going on within this man. But now it's gone. The howling has stopped. The stones once used to bruise his skin are put down. He puts on clothes for the first time in a long time, and he sits down. And Jesus sits with him. They begin to have a conversation, something this man hadn't done in forever. Jesus just sits 
and talks. And while he's talking, the, the hog farmers rush to town, tell everyone what had just happened and what had happened to their hogs. Now that Jesus had come to town, things had gotten a little crazy. The whole town comes out to the cemetery. They've got to see it for themselves. And when they get there, they see the one they used to fear. Clothed, sitting in his right mind, talking with Jesus, and you'd expect a party, perhaps at least a few hallelujahs. But no, just like the disciples after Jesus calmed the sea, that was when they became terrified. So now when Jesus had calmed this man, the townspeople see him, and Mark tells us they are afraid. Afraid of the man once mad, now healed, and they beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. They cast him out. Jesus comes to town, heals the man that they had cast out of society, and they cast Jesus out. Now, the story is terrifying, one of the most terrifying in all of Scripture, but even more so, it's heartbreaking that this man, now restored to life, finally is still unwanted. Even in his right mind, he still terrifies, for the people cannot separate the man from his demons that have been cast upon him. The man begs to go with Jesus. Why would he want to stick around with these people? Maybe he could become one of Jesus' disciples, but Jesus tells him, no. He needs to stay where he is. Go home to your friends. He has friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you what mercy God has shown upon you. And that's exactly what he does. He goes home and throughout the Decapolis, a Greek word which means 10 cities, this group of Gentile cities occupied by Rome, and he goes to every one of them, we're told, and tells them, and I love that phrase, how much Jesus has done for him. And hearing the testimony, people are no longer afraid, but we are told that they, they are all amazed. In a few chapters, Jesus will return to the same region. And instead of running, running him out of the neighborhood, he will be greeted by crowds of people waiting to hear what he has to say, to see what he can do. The man did his job. He told everyone what God had done for him. And maybe it's a message we need to hear today, that the names we are called, that we may call ourselves, that others may call us, that these names ultimately do not matter. The demons that torment us do not define us. Whatever it is that is weighing on our soul, whatever it is that makes us think that we are less than, that we are cast out and God forsaken, Jesus casts all these things out and fills us with perfect love. And that love, God's love, is all this man needs and it's all we need. It's what defines us now, and it's what sends us out like this man into mission into the world, telling those who need to hear the testimony the most how much Jesus has done for us. That is the good news summed up in a sentence. What Jesus has done for us. May we, like this man, go out and spread that good news so that when Jesus comes to town, lives are changed. And we are never the same again. May it be so here among us, in our neighborhood, and in this world. Amen. Let us come before God's table of love.
as we sing number 403 in remembrance of me. <laughs> 